0: to have Matthew Kieran, who is a professor at the University of Leeds. Uh, he's written on a number of topics in aesthetics, including art and morality debates and critical monism and pluralism issues. He's written a, a book that I really like called Revealing Art. Whenever anyone says there aren't enough good art examples in aesthetics, I point to this as a, as a great counterexample for that. Um, and he's recently been working on topics in virtue theory in aesthetics um, and uh, issues related to creativity as well and I think the talk today is going to be bringing together a few of those themes. Uh, his title is Creativity, Vanity and Narcissism and as those of you who come on a regular basis will know we are uh, as always grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continued support in this series of talks. But over to Matthew. Okay. Well um, thank you firstly for that very uh, charming introduction Andrew so thank you very much and Thank you to you all for uh, taking the time out uh, to be here. I hope I can in some way repay your interest. I look forward to um, discussion. So, um, I'm particularly interested in creativity and the relationship between creativity and character. Um, I've got a sort of general background account, which is um, the idea that exemplary creativity, what it is to be an exemplary creative person in part... Uh, is uh, constituted by certain kinds of creative virtues, so you might think, for example, curiosity, perhaps maybe the master of creative virtue, but there 's also a bunch of others which seem important, so uh, resilience to cope with uh, failure and challenges, courage to take risks, uh, and various other things now i 'm not really going to talk about that side of things today. I'm also not going to say much about what creativity is. There's a kind of assumption about creativity on your handout. Um, I tend to be more interested in what some people think of as deep or radical creativity, which is sometimes contrasts with elaborative creativity. There might be maybe interesting differences between the kinds. I'm not really going to think about that today. I'm just going to talk about creativity in general. There's a characterization at the top of the handout, uh, I think. To see now, I need new glasses. Right, okay. Uh, uh, so, it's at least sufficient or possibly necessary and sufficient uh, that uh, for someone to be uh, creative and take action involves their abilities and their judgments in a way which is at least reason sensitive, giving rise to something new and valuable. There's a bunch of whole other things you might worry about or you can say about that. I'm just not going to talk about that today. If it comes up as relevant, though, more than happy to talk about that in discussion, but I'm just going to assume it for the sake of cracking on. What I'm particularly interested in, as perhaps Daisy already indicated, because I lack character myself, I'm particularly interested in vices rather than virtues. And this is one. And I want to look at and explore a particular what I think of as a vice. In some reasons, because I think it poses a kind of interesting, let's say, tension, namely this. Um, There might be some reason to think, and I'm going to suggest there is some reason to think, that uh, at least a degree of vanity can be, as it were good making for your creativity. That says it can enable you as a creative person to do more new, more worthwhile things. And that in principle at least looks in tension with a sort of exemplary virtue, theoretic approach particularly if you think that you know, that's tied up with happiness or well-being and you think of vanity as a personal vice which doesn't usually contribute to that and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so you know it might be, one, one, one possibility might be, well it just turns out actually that sort of approach is wrong creativity, what's good for creativity is bunch of mixed things, some of which are what I think of as admirable traits, some of which are disadmirable, like vanity. But I'm going to try and suggest that actually whilst we should end up thinking of vanity as a creative vice, it's a particularly interesting one because I think it's got a very interesting close relationship to creative virtue. Okay, so that's the setup I'll crack on. Right I take it it's hardly a start in the new uh, or contemporary observation to say that creative people often seem particularly beset by vanity. So the self description of vanity, amongst other creative, uh, amongst creative people, is uh, uh, pretty common. So Tolstoy, for example, characterised his own creative motivation as being driven by vanity, self-interest and pride. Um, Orwell, in a very famous essay, identified his very first motivation for writing as sheer egoism, going on to characterise serious writers as opposed to mere journalists, a bit of a sneer there, as necessarily being more self-centred and vain. Uh, and in a similar vein, Sylvia Plath held, quote, writers and artists are the most narcissistic of all people. If you actually read a lot of biographies, case studies and testimonies about creative people, sadly, at least if you're naive like me, it turns out they're littered with what you might think of as the excesses of self-aggrandisement and self-admiring conceit. To take a case in point, if you look at Steve Jobs's uh, self-appointed biographer, by the way, um, he comes out pretty appallingly. Um, this is a man who thought and would talk about himself as the Leonardo of his times. Uh, regularly overclaimed credit for ideas. That's typical of narcissistic people. I'll say something about that uh, later. And patents, uh, not just ideas uh, and achievements. Um, it's no surprise, having read the biography, that actually a friend, someone who stayed friends with him, an ex girlfriend, He then went into mental health, uh, said she was 100% certain that he would score extremely high up on the uh, narcissistic personality disorder scale. So it was about narcissism in a bit. So you know, you pick up these biographies, you see these case studies, you know, John Richardson, famous critic, you know, his uh, book about modernist masters is called uh, Sacred Monsters, Sacred Masters, you know, Accident has got that title. Um, even if you look at some people who maybe aren't creative successes but are creative failures, they devoted their lives to creative, uh, creative uh, output, sometimes uh, uh, vanity looms large. So Percival Stockdale, to take a case in point, was so piqued at the success of Samuel Johnson's Lives of the Poets, he embarked on a mammoth rejoinder, this is something of cowsborn like proportions, it took him 13 years to write, half of which was spent in a Morrissey-style fashion, inveighing against Uh, how his uh, great uh, creative achievement had not been met. And as one critic put it sadly, quote, Mr. Stockdale is entitled only to the same sort of gratitude which we feel to the dullest of landlords who has invited us to dine with an interesting visitor. The interesting visitor being Johnson, of course. All right, so that's testimony, that's historical studies. You might worry about anecdote, quite right too. You might worry about selectivity bias. Nonetheless, there's a, work of, uh, a body of work in psychology which seems to suggest there are significant links between narcissism and creativity. So narcissism, whether it's pathological or subclinical, so you can do tests where so you can see uh, at normal subjects, how high up or low up you are on the narcissistic subclinical scale. It's characterized typically by the following. So a grandiose sense of self-importance, very high self-estimating belief, the seeking out of attention and admiration. So there's a bunch of studies, I'll just highlight some just by way of example. So Raskin, who was the first to look at this in the 80s, found a significant positive correlation between the creativity and narcissism, so for example, uh, uh, being high up for one was uh, significantly predictive of being high up for the other, and that seems consistent with a bunch of more recent studies, Uh, so for example, uh, people like Furnham have uh, registered that narcissists who tend to score much more highly than normal subjects, not just for self reported creativity, no surprise there then, <laughs> all right, but also creative achievement, how it's measured, we can get into in discussion, uh, uh, tend to register more highly than uh, other subjects. A um, more interesting study by Wallace and Baumanster found that subjects low in narcissism tended to perform no differently whether they faced high or low self enhancement opportunities but people who registered more highly up for the narcissistic scale tended to outperform normal subjects where there was opportunity for self-enhancement. Quote, narcissists consistently performed much better when high performance would be self-enhancing. Okay, so finally it's worth considering our own experiences. I won't dwell on this too much, just internal reflection. If you work in a domain where people strive to be creative, philosophy, um, art, music, literature, academics, Consider some of the behaviour you have witnessed, or sotto voce, perhaps some of your own. Uh, it's not uncommon, maybe, for people to boast or grandstand, or name drop, or pose, or overclaim credit, or significance, or diminish the significance of the contribution of others. Check out citations, worry about conference invitations, feud with others. Uh, you can fill in the rest. OK. So that's to suggest there is a kind of potentially interesting link, but then to think about what that interesting link might be and why it might be interesting, I'm now just going to move to try giving what I take to be uh, chara- a decent characterization of vanity. So what is it and how might it be related to creative <coughs> ambition? Okay, so I take it central to the notion of vanity that in some sense the vain think too much of themselves. So Tiberius and Walker say... Vanity consists almost entirely in a person's having an excessively high self-estimation. Okay, so you have to be careful here. Of course, you can self-overestimate in a way which isn't a function of vanity. Perhaps you're just optimistic. Right. So I find this every year. I over-optimistically, maybe it's vanity, I, but you know, I like to think it's optimism, but I would, wouldn't I? Over, o- over-optimistic about how much work I'm going to get done, all that kind of stuff. All right. So uh, the other thing to watch out for is, um, I don't think it's conceptually necessary that involves self- overestimation. So maybe Steve Jobs did turn out to be the alarm of his era, and he was justified, and it was true, in some interesting sense. You know, Maybe Julius Caesar was right, such that he was the only person who could have saved the Republic. So I don't think there's a necessary connection to self-overestimating beliefs, but there's a non-contingent, necessary connection to the tendency to overestimate, and that's what needs to be explained, right? So it will turn out as a psychological matter that necessarily, typically, vain people will tend to overestimate. Okay. Um, and I take it that it's a necessary condition of vanity that relevant self-related beliefs must be high. Okay? There must be respect further with respect to something that's construed as valuable, admirable or praiseworthy in some respect, or at least an indirect reflection of something that is taken as admirable or related to something admirable. Okay. Okay, now in that respect, Robertson would characterise vanity as, quote, an excessive concern to be well regarded by other people for the social importance their regard confers. But I don't think vanity has such need to be driven by social importance. What matters, as it were, is that the vain appear, and I'm going to suggest appear to themselves as esteemed or worthy of esteem. Why? Because as Taylor puts it, the vain offer their appearance as a means of seducing others into thinking well of them, which is in turn a means of seducing themselves into thinking well of themselves. And that's really what's driving it. So in other words, I think actually vanity seeks and delights in fundamentally self-glorification, which typically though, need not be concerned with social significance. Okay, and of course, uh, uh, that's not to say that uh, uh, we shouldn't delight in praise, but delight in praise, in a way which is innocence, we distinguish delight in praise and apprehension in self being or appearing highly admirable or praiseworthy, and that's driving what you do. So think of the difference between, oh, I'm pleased that, that other people are pleased with what I have did, and uh, something like, uh, 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 others value what I do. What I do. So a crucial element of the drive for self-glorification, I take it, is it's constitutive of the vanity that the apprehension of the self appears highly admirable to an actual or idealised self-audience. Think of it as an applied or implied audience. It's not accidental that narcissus is often used, though that's a mistake, right? Narcissus thought that he was looking at someone else. Okay? So he couldn't be... Right, okay. But it's not accidental, typically, in art, that a stereotypical representation of vanity is someone staring in the mirror at their own reflection. Okay, um. So there's a way in which the vein, as it were, is self con- self-conscious, and that self-conscious is delighting in themselves as glorified or glorifiable, which typically goes by an implied audience. Though so that employed audience could be themselves in the reflexive sense, it could be God, it could be future posterity, I seek to be famous in the, after my death, or it could be some actual audience don't talk about x too much. Okay. I want to bring out a contrast between arrogance and vanity, right? Arrogance need know nothing of how the self appears to others. It presumes itself entitled to what the vain see. So the arrogant may care not a jot for what other people think, the vain care what the implied audience thinks. That's why arrogance is often bound up with indifference, complacency or contempt with respect to others. But they typically need not dwell on or savour their self-image as admired or admirable to others. They presume what the vain seek. So vanity is necessarily indexed to an implied audience in a way that arrogance is not. Why? Because vanity seeks the appraisal, praise and admiration which arrogance presumes itself entitled to. I'm not saying the two aren't closely related, but they're conceptually distinct in this kind of way. So now if that's right, there are going to be three really important elements to vanity. Right? So the first is high self-estimate. Okay. You can seek self-glorification but have low self-estimate, you know, and qualify as vain. Okay. And the desire for self-glorification and appreciation of the self as glorified or glorified <coughs> by an audience. Okay, so here's my stab at what I think is the right characterization of vanity, then. So a person is vain to the degree that features playing a causal role in someone's judgments, responses, or actions, are driven by, at least along with concomitant rationalisations, the desire for gratification in appending the self as glorified, as partly constituted by high self-estimate, by the elicited or solicited appreciation or esteem of an actual or idealised implied audience. Isn't that a joyful sentence? <laughs> OK. There's a bunch of things worth foregrounding, I think, about this. I'm not going to concentrate on them too, too much, but I'll just pick out the features. Notice that that's consistent with it not being necessarily true in each and every instance, that the vein are uh, uh, over self-estimating, but it does explain uh, that what you might think of as the necessarily typical tendency towards self-estimation. It explains why the vein typically solicit the esteem of others, at least with respect to the implied audience. Um, and it also explains how the desire for self-glorification provides the rule under which the vain person is disposed to act. So in other words, you seek to focus on and draw attention back to yourself in self glorifying, attention seeking ways, and that explains a bunch of features. So, compliment seeking, boastfulness, uh, overclaiming credit or responsibility for certain kinds of achievements, uh, uh, underclaiming responsibilities for certain kinds of failures, oversensitivity to both pro and con, certain kinds of praise, admiration, conference invites, fill in the rest. Okay. All right. Now I want to look at what the relationship, assuming something like that characterization, vanity is right. What the relationship might be between vanity and creative endeavor. Okay. Um, I'm just going to give you a bunch of hypotheses. Um, so it's worth just reminding ourselves before we do that uh, one of the things that the vain person, in seeking to be creative anyway, uh, is seeking is something comparatively distinctive, right? If you're seeking to be creative you're st- seeking to stand out as original, have, as having done something super valuable, which I can't believe I said super valuable, there you go, extremely <laughs> valuable, and turning into Canadian, there you go, awesome, okay, extremely valuable, which really differentiates you from all your peers in a, essentially a valorised domain. Right. right, so to the degree that someone is vain, he or she looks for self-glorifying ways in which he, she, can be a peer to some relevant implied audience. Esteemed or esteem worthy. Of course, in many domains, being creative is extremely highly valued. People are, uh, uh, are praised for it, are hired for it, are encouraged for it, are valorized for it in all sorts of ways. Indeed, so in domains thought of as creative domains, are themselves valorized in those kinds of ways. So, where a vain person recognizes that being creative is considered highly valorized in these kinds of ways and is rewarded as such, other things being equal, he or she may aim to be creative in his or her work. In other words, vain people aim to look good. An easy way of doing so might be be creative, or at least appear to be so. Okay, so vanity can play a causal cool <coughs> role in helping people to aim for creative activity in domains. It's kind of causal cool. spur. So I'll get in more detail into how this plays out. Okay, it might also express and amplify vanity rather than prompt it. So one thing is, to the degree that someone appears or is creative, then her creative activity might afford more means for manifesting her vanity. Right? I'm a vain person. I can can manifest this and yet many more articles and many more paintings and many more and so on and so forth. So I can amplify it with some relevant implied audience, um, why, as I said, so you can do something comparatively new and worthwhile each time um, and of course at least in certain kinds of ways that tends to attract not just valorisation with respect to the product but you as a creative person. So it can amplify the signalling strength or expression of your self-esteem or your self-glorification. And uh, in ways I might not go into too much detail, it can lead to the acquisition or the cultivation of vanity. Think about things like early success and uh, uh, second novel or second album syndrome. To the degree that someone is, appears to be creatively successful, if especially if you're highly praised as special, there's some interesting stuff in the psychology of people who are picked out, identified as highly gifted early on. which is quite interesting, quite sad in some ways. Um, Particularly if you're praised as special and creative and gifted, and particularly often where that seems to be conditional on your achievement, then this might cause someone's natural delight in the esteem of others to be cultivated into vanity. I mean, at the other end of the extreme, think about it. if you're Michael Jackson, you're surrounded by this coterie of followers, and even where you start turning out the album bad, off the ball, and thriller, it's not quite as good, but everyone says it's even better, you might start to believe your own life, right? Okay. So even for those who are not initially vain, it could be such, given human psychology, surrounded by a sort of kind of coterie reward for your success, praise for your extraordinary gifts and genius and so on, so it might end up being cultivated into vanity. Okay. So I'm going to say a little bit more about how vanity might now be good for creativity rather than that sort of kind of uh, um, pretty sketchy abstract level. Uh, so, how might we think of vanity as being good for uh, creative activity? Well, presumably the thought can't be like, a, um, um, the greater the vanity, the greater the creative good, right? That's why we have the term vanity projects. You're so radically unhinged from reality that there's just no chance. But there are things to be said about that, but still, okay. So, that can't be the thought, but the thought might be something like, some degree of vanity might be good, right? So let's just take her on that. So, inflated self-estimate of your abilities might, for example, lead you to set yourself higher targets than you otherwise would to aim at, okay, if you weren't so vain self-overestimating. In virtue of you setting yourself at a higher target than you otherwise would, you might be more likely to achieve it, right? You set yourself a high target. In the process of setting yourself a high target, you up- start skilling yourself up in a way in which you wouldn't otherwise, if it was a lower target, because you wouldn't have to stretch so far, it might be harder and more difficult, but then you're more likely to work at the edge of your creative capacities. The more you work at the edge of your creative capacities, the more likely you are to creatively develop. The more you creatively develop, the more likely you are to uh, achieve something, as it were, higher or more worthwhile At least <coughs> with respect to skill. Um, particularly, at least, of course, uh, where failure might not correspond very well with your self-image uh, and your self-glorification, right? The prospect of failure might itself be an added spur, at least if it's going to be visible in some way, and so on and so forth. So, of course, it might help you skill yourself up more and might act as an extra uh, a spur or motivational import, uh, impetus. Um, and you might be more motivated to persevere despite setbacks and so on and so forth. So you might be overcome creative challenges and all that kind of stuff. Um, Of course, it might be true that uh, given the desire for self-glorification with respect to an implied audience as the motivation, then the vain person might pay more attention to at least the relevant implied audience, what it is they think, um, what it is they're trying to judge about how good or otherwise or how you're creating a project proceeding. So that might lead the vain person to become more discriminating than otherwise about the value, norms and judgments of the relevant implied audience. And insofar as this is true, she might tend to be much better at anticipating what the implied audience will value and esteem as surprising, new and valuable. In other words, vanity may aid greater tracking and discrimination about what will be esteemed as creatively valuable and worthwhile. Now of course, how adaptive that is to creativity creativity is going to de- partly depend on who the relevant and implied audience is, right? I mean, if it's X factor, you might not get very far, right? But if you're in a domain where you think the values are more or less on track and the norms and so on and so forth more or less on track and the, I don't know the referees' comments and the system set up in such a way, then you might find that you pay more attention to that stuff to so you improve your article rather than uh, uh, dismiss it or pay less attention to it. Okay. I mean, in a way, actually, uh, 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 well, think about it like this. I'm not saying this is true of Madonna. If you don't think it's true of Madonna, think of it as Madonna star. Uh, I fairly recently read uh, uh, a biography of Madonna where the characterization went something like as follows. I think it's a bit harsh, but here was the characterization. Um, what Madonna was really good at was actually picking out really creative outliers who were really good at doing something creative at the musical edges but then weren't very good at actually integrating it in a way with contemporary music. Because she was so vain and was so desperate to be self-glorifying, what she was really good at was picking on those outliers and combining with what was really good about what you might think of as contemporary popular culture, which made her much better than those outliers that she was using. Why? Because she was more discriminating. Why was she more discriminating? She wanted to be a popular success. Why? Because she was so full of herself. Now, I'm not saying that's true of Madonna, not a particularly nice thing to say, but you can imagine how that goes. But look at the structure of the explanation. Don't worry about whether it's true about Harry in particular or not. You can see how the thought <coughs> goes. So a degree of vanity might tend towards more ambitious task setting. It might uh, 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 involve higher self-set creative expectations. It might promote greater rather than less creative risk-taking. Uh, greater perseverance, at least where the uh, uh, possibility of failure does not conform to your self-enhancement. It might be internal more uh, visible to a public. Uh, it might, at least in the last uh, 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 case, uh, enable more discriminate seeking out of, or anticipational, more worthwhile creative projects likely to be more well received. Okay, so and that seems at odds with what you might think of, as at least remember I started off with this idea that, uh, well, exemplary creativity involves these admirable character traits which are the traits which enable more worthwhile, uh, more valuable creative activity. Okay. All right, we're doing all right for time. Okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give what I think of as uh, uh, two ways in which I think uh, vanity is susceptible to certain kinds of error tendencies, which I think creative virtue is not. And then in the last section, I want to say something about what the relationship is, if that's right, uh, about uh, how we should both still think of vanity as a creative vice, but one which has an interesting relationship to creative virtue. Okay, I mean, not all creative vices will have an interesting relationship, right? You might think the first part's laziness. Yeah, but not so interesting. Who knew? Lazy. Well, creative vice, okay. Actually, there's more you can say about that, but. Okay, so here's what I think of as, I mean I think there are possibly others, but these are the two I'm going to concentrate on. The first one is really to do with alienation from others. So I take it in most creative domains we rely heavily upon collaboration and cooperative uh, activity in order to be creative. And even if you don't think, even if you think there are areas where collaboration is far from central, strikes me that we typically depend very, very heavily, much more heavily than is commonly recognised, I think, on what you might think is broader cooperative activity. So even single author writers, so novels think about philosophy, typically not always single author activity, relies on, in his, we we are engaged in a cooperative uh, group activity right now, which is governed by certain norms which are both to facilitate not just courtesy and politeness, as they should, but to facilitate, hopefully, helping, in a way, make each other's, in this case, my, thank you all. Uh, uh, but you know, in, a, in a broader sense, it's part of the, the, this is going to be the result of the upshot of our creative intellectual community, right? OK, so even single author writers, for example, standardly rely on all sorts of cooperative norms and practices in the development of their creative work. Most authors seek feedback, they appreciate good editors, they listen sometimes to some criticism. That requires a certain kind of cooperation, good faith, The presumption of cooperative reciprocity rather than free-riding is built into many of these practices. And even authors renowned for their individuality or splendid isolation, actually if you look at the case studies and the history and all the rest of it, turn out to rely far more heavily on other people than you might think unless you knew the history, so you know just by way of illustration. Raymond Carver, very famous American short story writer, very famous for a very particular distinctive kind of prose. So, uh, you know, the term Carver-esque entered the vocabulary, it was very celebrated, slightly romantic picture of him, he always wrote and he's clapped out, I think it was a VW outside his house, and no one was allowed to disturb him, and uh, sort of like, okay, yeah. All right, well, actually, it turned out, once he died, and once people looked at his notes and so on and so forth, actually, the development of his style wasn't just about him, it was actually really heavily dependent upon and came about to do with his uh, respective editors, Gordon Lish then Tess Gallagher. So much so that when Carver's original, unedited versions of his short stories came out, Giles Harvey, some kind of literary critic, claimed, quote, "...it has only inadvertently pointed up the editorial genius of Gordon Lish." It's a bit like Pound was to Eliot in The Waste Land, right? Now even where vain people are charismatic, because grandiosity combined with a certain kind of attention on you, because they want your admiration, can be quite attractive and powerful. Least insofar as it tends towards grandstanding and self-involvement, the appeal tends to wear off at least at co- close quarters over time. At least such as... Uh, I was about to say my experience. Such as. <laughs> anyway, so vanity is not something people tend to find particularly attractive, at least over time, right? Um, so, uh, but the deeper creative problem is not really its unattractiveness. Um, it's that it tends to corrode cooperation, and it tends to undermine collaborative activity, even when people, other people are strongly committed to working cooperatively, and even where it's in the creative self-interest of other people to work with the vein. Why? Well, inflated self-estimation guided by desire for glorifying approval from others tends towards a bunch of things as I suggested, including puffing yourself up, self-aggrandisement, nicking credit, underclaiming responsibility for failure, there's a tendency to focus or foreground or exaggerate and overclaim things, expect a greater esteem or admiration. You know, there's no... For example, if you're Del Paulhouse, who devised uh, sort of the test for subclinical narcissism and your propensity to it, one of the, you know, many interesting features of the test, but one of the things is people tend to overclaim in the most basic of ways, so you really slightly more high up for the narcissistic tale. You'll claim you know and you have familiarity with things which you can't because they just don't exist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll claim you really know much more than other people do about the Miles Tracy quartet or whatever it is, so there's no such quartet, right? But you know, you jazz and then you know you're and we know you. Okay. All right. Now, if that someone's doing that seriously when you're working with them, they know more about the neuroscience, all the da, da, da and it turns out they don't and they can't do it, that tends to lead to all sorts of uh, creative problems in projects and whatever it is. And that tends to be corrosive of a trust. We learn. I mean, it's not that they're unreliable, they turn out to be reliable. reliable in the wrong kind of a way, right? They're reliably unreliable, right? Okay. Um, at least in certain ways, with respect to what they claim, but they're also reliable with respect to overclaiming credit and underclaiming responsibility when things go wrong. So that's bad when you meet certain challenges or things do go wrong. Of course, how that interacts with the person's psychology and the situation is going to be complicated. Right, So, for example, people tend to put up with a lot of Steve Jobs that they wouldn't put up with nearly anyone else because they thought he really was being taken places and because, quite frankly, he employed them. right? Um, you know, so if you're not very powerful, you know. Look, uh, uh, the two others who people struggle to name in the Smiths put up with quite a lot. Why? Because Morrissey <laughs> was taking places. Okay, all right. Um, still, so there are going to be complicating factors, but nonetheless, fantasy tends to make creative friendships, collaboration, and cooperation a fraught process. Does um, not say creative vain people can't achieve creative heights. Okay. Um, But nonetheless, it is going to make it very difficult, and it is going to mean that uh, creative relationships are going to explode before their time, at the person not being vain, or there's going to be all sorts of misdirection and errors uh, uh, along the way. So, seeing as I mentioned Morrissey, let's take Morrissey. (coughs) Okay, Morrissey's autobiography, in the words of one critic quote, is a heavy tome, utterly devoid of insight, warmth, wisdom, or likability. It is a potential firelight of vanity, Self-pity and logarithmic dullness. A humiliation constructed by the self-regard of its victim. Aa, A. Gill, slightly sharp. I think, actually, it's better than that. I mean, I think... But, but still, I mean, you know, as you read it, you're like, Morrissey is just not doing himself any favours. And he's condemned within his own words, right? I kid you not. I mean, it gets boring because he can't resist digging at other people. So it just gets this grand litany of falling out with labels and managers and musicians and fans and music journalists and very often it's the very people who time and time again are trying to help him and facilitate him and give him another chance and so on and so forth. And you know, uh, uh, in ways which clearly manifest, you know, they possibly can't recognise his genius because they are, you know, they are stupid, or they are vulgar, or they are talentless dullards, and etc, etc, etc. And this is really sad, right? The Smiths were really great, and Morrissey on his own was not so great. Okay. Uh, now, it might be that s- that now it might be tempting for some people to say this is only really a social problem for vanity. So where the creativity involves social aspects of it then sure, vanity might turn out to be a kind of creative group vice or a social creative vice or a creative vice where really it's to do with the social stuff. But lots of creative activity really is carried on in, in isolation. Now I'm kind of quite sceptical about how much that is true, um, but let's not worry about that. Let's just say, OK, well, that's fine. Okay. But it's not the only error susceptibility. So now I'm going to concentrate on an error susceptibility which is really to do with... Uh, It doesn't depend on the sociality of creative activity or creative projects, and in a way I think it's the most problematic aspect of vanity. Um, Insofar as people's vanity tends towards overestimation of the nature of what they have achieved, or their role in such, and what they're capable of doing well, vain people naturally tend to overreach themselves, so it's all too easy for vain people to set themselves at creative ambitions they are badly placed to realise. Moreover, vanity is going to be blind to certain kinds of risks because you overestimate your abilities. You're not blind to, as it were, a possibility of failure. Um, underestimate others. You're amazing. Why would people not love what you do? It's going to be amazing because you are. Um, um, and overvalue certain kinds of rewards where, as it were, because you're driven by self-glorification, you might overvalue the number of citations as you spend an hour looking at your Google Citations index and uh, whatever else it is and so on and so forth. And that might bless you. That might lead you uh, in a certain direction, which it should not, namely conventional or intellectual fashion. OK, so vanity will have a tendency to set people up to fail, I think, and give rise to what may turn out to be a huge amount of wasted creative time and effort. So an example, I should have thought to bring you aside would would me my early illustration, nonetheless, um, a contemporary of Wordsworth and uh, Keats and so on and so forth, is an artist called Robert Hayden, you probably won't have heard of. There is good reason. Um, <laughs> He thought he was the man to restore history. History painting at the time has started to fall from what it was considered historically, at least a couple hundred years before, as the pinnacle of the fine arts. And he thought he was the man, single-handedly, who was clearly going to restore it to the pinnacle in virtue of the greatness of his work. I mean, he really thought this. Um, Sadly, he wasn't that good. (laughs) Right? Um, uh, But he, he was quite good. Right, so he did occasionally do what you might think of as kind of more low level demotic street scenes, which are incredibly expressive, very good. Uh, so the National Gallery has one of those rather than history's paintings uh, on display, or at least he did it did until fairly recently. Um, uh, his best history, history paintings are not bad, some of them are awful. So there's one of the Emperor Trajan where he's j- jumping over a chasm and supposed to be looking all regal and powerful and so on and so forth. And the, the horse just looks like it's just gonna drop straight into the chasm, right? The way it's constructed, just, it's, it's just dreadful. And he, he kept applying to the Royal Academy, kept getting rejected. Obviously it was because these people were less talented than him and couldn't stand to his taking the glory and set up his own painting school, which ran at a loss because etc, etc. But if he'd only not misdirected his efforts because he was so vain and so kind of grandiose and, and, and so worried about whether he really would establish, right, well, he could have done much more of these kind of great street scenes and they would have been much better and his life would have been wasted and so futile and bitter. Here we go. So, error of misdirection there. Why? Function of vanity. Why you seek self-glorification in this case. History, not just... Right, okay. Moreover, insofar as the vain are guided by the self-glorifying desire for esteem, they'll tend to put in hard work only where this is either visible to the relevant, implied audience, in this case history for Hayden, or devoted towards something that is assumed will eventually be visible and esteemed by them, posterity. So even where it motivates, it does so by tracking the vagaries of intellectual, artistic or design fashion as indexed to the relevant, implied audience. So what that means is to the degree that creative people are vain, they will tend to track what is conventionally (coughs) approved of and esteemed by the implied audience who they're fixated by. So in other words, the vain will tend towards conformity towards the values and interests of the implied audience. Well, I said exactly how that works is going to depend on who the implied audience is, but think about this. A vain author seeking commercial success will tend to track commercial trends and esteem manifest in in popular culture and commercial success are the same, which they're not, those things. Um, what matters for such a person might be sales, so you look at your number of sales, you don't care about citations, you care know about sales and how high you are up on the Amazon chart for this week, or whatever it is. Um, reviews in the popular press, media appearances, the size of audience at the literary festival or something. Okay, if you're a If your implied audience is very different, you might sneer at the merely commercial. Why? Because you're among the cognoscenti and you solicit the esteem of some smaller group, at least wider than your mum. Uh, Although it could be in some weird relationship type thing, all right? But it could be your intellectual uh, peers in philosophy world or it could be something else. Okay, but in that case you'll be, you'll tend to focus Quite heavily on whatever the norms uh, are underwriting the value judgments of that particular implied audience. Like, in other words, you're going to be a bit fixated about the uh, vagaries of intellectual fashion uh, uh, and, and the values of your uh, implied audience rather than thinking more generally about what is worthwhile per se. Okay. Um, the vain personal rules, and, and that's bad because that's going to tend towards conventionality towards the implied audience. The vain person, I think, will also, at least given the characterisation, tends to dismiss all too easily the criticism of those who are not part of the implied audience, or consider doubtful where possible, the status of those who are critical as not really falling into the real implied audience. Right? In other words, vanity tends to insulate against and lead to the dismissal of the criticism as voiced by those perceived not to belong to the implied audience, and that's often very bad. Why? Because you, there's good reason to think that diversity of perspective makes for greater uh, creativity. Um, if we were all analytic philosophies and hated phenomenology, this would be a bad thing, right? Okay. All right, this is problematic, given that at least sometimes precisely what is needed to develop creatively is to listen to the worries, objections, or points of view from those outside the group one does or aspires to belong to or self-identifies with. Where criticism and disesteem comes from those who belong to the implied audience and they're being reasonably put into doubt cannot be uh, 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 questioned, then the vain person will have a tendency to, to be oversensitive, and that's going to explain tendencies either to overreact in response to that criticism by trying to realign their creative projects or activity in line with the esteem of the relevant group, uh, or perhaps dismiss that person or dismiss that group, or perhaps just kind of give everything up and, and, and start and flounce out and, and start on something again. Think about Morrissey. Okay. Now, of course, conceptually speaking, vanity need not necessarily know of such errors. These are error susceptibilities and tendencies. But given what it is to be vain, to the degree someone is vain, they will have marked tendencies towards making these kinds of mistakes, both misdirection and errors in judgment or conformity towards certain kinds of values. Vain people expose themselves to the strong possibility of these kinds of failings, misdirections and stunted creative development. I think this problem is compounded where people meet with some degree of early or intense creative success, reward, applause and esteem. Is given the multiple functions of esteem indicators, and esteem indicators have very many functions, um, often orthogonal to actually tracking creative value. Um, And also given the fact that admired success tends to attract people and systems who serve motivations other than really trying to help or serve uh, 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 or enable creativity and true worth. As creative success is rewarded with indicators of esteem or indicators taken as such, uh, 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 then that can attract and uh, uh, glorify in ways which are orthogonal to uh, true creative worth. So the acquisition and development of vanity can proceed in ways that bring about or reinforce echo chamber effects and an epistemic insulation from the kind of criticism required for true creative development. Alright, so I think there's two errors, one which has really tried to to do with sociality, the other ones I think uh, are independent of the sociality, so even if you think of creativity as the most isolated project, I still think it will tend towards certain kinds of misdirection, certain kinds of conventionality, certain kinds of failures. Nonetheless, in a sense it's a kind of mixed good, right? Because under some circumstances, remember I outlined, it can be a, you know, a, a booster, both to your motivation and need to take certain kinds of risks, and those risks can sometimes pay off, you know? Okay. So one way of thinking about vanity, I would like to suggest, is, is kind of analogous to a certain kind of stimulants that can both boost creative performance, but at least over time will also tend towards misjudgment and misdirection, right? So it's like a drug that has certain kinds of side effects. All right. And the idea is that creative virtue won't have those side effects, okay? But there's going to be a lot of overlap between what vanity may enable and what true creative virtue may enable. And that's why they're close cousins in a certain kind of a way. Of course, I'm not saying seeking praise is a bad thing. Seeking praise is often a good thing. Depends how you do it. The trouble is that vanity seeks praise as self-glorifying, and self-glorification is the rule under which responses, actions, and decisions are made. In effect, it, def- it really fixes on what you might think of as defeasible indicators of what it is to be, creatively speaking, on the right track in relation to some goal which is external to it, self-glorification, that you're glorified as praiseworthy, amazing, and so on and so forth. And then treats that kind of indicator okay, as the goal itself. So the fundamental error is that va- the vain value, attitudes, of praise or admiration as ends in themselves, rather than as, at best, indicators of creative progress or <coughs> <and> achievement. <coughs> That's kind of the the fundamental error which explains the susceptibility to the errors two of which I talked about. Okay, last section, I'll say a little bit more about the relationship between vanity and creative virtue and then we'll finish. So I take it that fame and glory is often clearly orthogonal to genuine creative achievement. So vanity, as I've suggested, takes indicators of creative success, that is attitudes of others, praise, applause, uh, sometimes cultural esteem indicators as the end to aim at for the sake of self glorification. By contrast, the best, that is, the most virtuous creative end to aim at, just is the end of doing something new that is good uh, or worthwhile. Though of course, often that involves aiming at something which does happen to be and more than just contingently esteemed by others. Okay. It's true that if we are aiming at something creative worthwhile, we may even, at least if we're uh, 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 I was about to say lucky enough, maybe uh, in some cases more than just luck. Uh, we can sometimes justifiably believe that what we have done is indeed praiseworthy and deserves praise, but we're not going to quite have the same attitude towards that as the vain word, These virtuous. Why? That should be a byproduct of the ends that exemplary creativity aims at rather than the end itself. Exemplary creativity, therefore, if that's right, is going to insulate people from the kind of errors I've outlined fantasy as being susceptible to. Why? Because the creatively virtuous aim to do something new and worthwhile, so concern for garnering esteem as such does not figure directly in their reasoning about what they do. It can figure indirectly. Of course, we can explain why vanity can seem mistakenly to be a, a creative strength, at least an unqualified one. It's not just that vanity brings some creative advantages alongside exposure to certain kinds of potential creative misdirections and failings. It's also, I think, that of all the creative vices, vanity may be the closest cousin to creative virtue. In fact, Hume suggested more generally, quotes that vanity is so closely allied to virtue. And Hume would think this, mind. Nonetheless, vanity is so closely allied to virtue, and to love the fame of laudable actions approaches so near the love of laudable actions for their own sake that those passions are more capable of mixture than any kinds of affection. More strongly still, I would want to suggest that. Uh, 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 Creative vanity can be harnessed with respect to creative development via a kind of psychological bootstrapping into, or at least towards, the cultivation of true creative virtue. The vain person who seeks glorification from actual praise can attempt attempt to show them that she will tend to have, or he will tend to be more creative if she seeks justifiable praise rather than any old kind of praise. And then the vain creative person who then starts to seek justifiable praise can then perhaps be shown that it would be better still if he or she sought doing what is worthwhile as the end itself rather than aiming directly at self glorifying esteem. No doubt if we're aiming to do something creatively, we do so because we think it is worth doing. And to the extent we think something is worth doing, we have done it well, we may approve of ourselves and enjoy the praise of others. So I'm not saying that creative virtue is inconsistent with delight in esteem. In fact, it better be consistent with it. But creative virtue involves enjoying the praise of a relevant implied audience as a byproduct of aiming to do something well rather than the goal itself. That is why, as with, say, Mendel in the scientific case, Dickinson in the poetic case, or Van Gogh, exemplary creative people sometimes pursue self set creative ends, even where their achievement is at, le- at least as yet unrecognised and unsung. There was a period, it wasn't true for Van Gogh's entire life, but you know, there was a period where he basically sold one painting, which was a sympathy buy to his brother. Oh. Okay. So if what I've suggested is on the right lines, then I think there's. Uh, some reasons think that the apparent tension with the virtue theoretic approach to exemplary he- human creativity has been met. Uh, in raising and looking at the challenge, I think we've seen how and why vanity, when we've characterised it, can, at least in some respects, on some circumstances, actually enable and enhance creativity, whilst it's also true at the same time that it's uh, necessarily susceptible to certain kinds of errors of underperformance, failure. Or misdirection, and it's that kind of overlap, whilst also as it were having those susceptibilities, which I think explains why vanity is an interesting creative vice. That is, it's a close cousin to creative virtue. So thinking it as a close cousin it captures both that relation, and I think how perhaps of all the vices, as it were, vanity might most easily be cultivated into uh, creative virtue. So there's hope for us at me yet. Okay. Alright, so I think conceiving that kind of a way shows how we might psychologically leverage uh, a, a certain kind of vice into creative virtue. Thank you very much.